Good morning, church. What a sweet time of worship. And you know what? Guess what? We get to continue. (laughs) We get to worship God now and continue to contemplate the greatness of our God as we open the scriptures together. This is uh, is just awesome. (laughs) So we're in uh, Psalms this summer and Proverbs. So we're continuing the series that uh, Pastor Gilson started off. And we are going to be in Psalm chapter 50 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm chapter 50. And as Pastor Gilson pointed out last week, the Psalms are not all sunshine and roses. And that's because the content of the Psalms are indeed rooted in reality. And life, unfortunately, is not all sunshine and roses. The Psalms are genuine and and they're authentic. And they press on real issues, real sorrow, real happiness, and so on. And I, I believe that's why the Psalms so have, have so consistently s- spoken to so many people because it's rooted in reality. True and authentic descriptions resonate with people, don't they? And today, We are in Psalm 50, and it is going to be the same. It is going to be real. It is going to be authentic. It is going to be something that everyone must face. We are going to address something like happiness and sorrow that everyone has to one day face. And what is the content of Psalm 50? Psalm 50 is a psalm concerning judgment. Another reality That man must face. Psalm 50 is God the judge. It is adoration and worship of God the judge. And it is the first of 12 psalms written by Asaph. And we see a little bit about Asaph in certain texts. And in particular here, 1 Chronicles 16, verses 4 and 5. Uh, we see a a little bit about this character who wrote this psalm. It states that David placed the Ark of the Covenant inside the tent which he had pitched, and then David appointed some Levites as ministers before the Ark of the Lord to celebrate and to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. It then proceeds to list out names of who these people were. The first of these people was Asaph. Asaph the chief. He was a Levite. And Levites were essentially in charge of worship in the temple. They uh, they were uh, the musicians who honored and worshiped God. And you can say that Asaph, in a sense, is like our brother, Paul DeMano, right? Asaph is the Paul DeMano of of his time. He would lead the congregation in singing and adoration towards God, praising Yahweh through music. That was Asaph's job, the Levite worshiping and serving in the temple. And Psalm 50, as we just indicated, is written by Asaph. They were inspired by God for him to to write as a praise toward himself, towards God. He worshiped the Lord God concerning God's judgment. Wow. Today, I pray that we see what Asaph saw We see how important it is to worship God the judge and how connected that is to his character, to who he is. Now, these types of songs today are probably a little too authentic 
for the faint in heart. If Psalm 50 was sung in many churches today, it would probably result in a mass departure from the chapel, and people may be a little uh, uncomfortable, maybe even horrified. I mean, think of verse 22 in the psalm that we're about to read. It says, Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you into pieces with no one to rescue you. Imagine if we got together and started singing these types of words. It's, it's foreign to us, but you know, God inspired Asaph to write it, and it wasn't foreign to him. As Asaph is worshiping in the temple, what came to mind? God the judge. And he worshiped him. I pray we see the same thing Asaph saw, and that we see how important this is in our aspect of worship of the Lord, and understand well who God is. So we're going to read the psalm, and we're going to learn a little bit about God, his judgment, and how this applies to us. Let's read the psalm together. Why don't we all stand if we're able? I'm going to read all of Psalm 50 together. There's uh, one, uh, two verses at the end that are highlighted in red. We'll read those uh, together. So this is the word of God. The mighty one, God, the Lord has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown. May our God come and not keep silent. Fire devours before him and a storm is violently raging around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. Hear my people and I will speak. Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor male goats from your folds, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountain, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and everything it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of male goats? Offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High." Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, What right do you have to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you yourself hate discipline, and you throw my words behind you. When you see a thief, you become friends with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue harness deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. I will rebuke you and present the case before your eyes. Let's read this together. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be no one to save you. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who sets his way properly, I will show the salvation of God. Let's remain standing as we go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come before you now and we thank you for this word. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us.
this morning, Lord, that you would allow us to see you as God the judge and for it to be a beautiful thing, Lord. God, that you would let this truth resonate in our hearts and change us from this day forward, we pray. Amen. You may all be seated. So, as Asaph recognized, the content of true worship is always going to be about God. It's always going to be God-centric, concerning him, rooted in his character and his nature. We worship God because of who he is. And any form of proper worship is going to do this. Now, this can uh, involve his interactions with mankind, as it, as it often does, but nonetheless, the person performing actions, the person revealing his character, is going to be God. He is going to be the central figure in any proper worship. We're going to be contemplating the type of person God is, some of his attributes, and that's what causes us to melt before the Lord and have those wonderful moments of worship like we had this morning uh, with, uh, with our wonderful music ministry team leading us in the adoration of God. And again, as we already said, Psalm 50 is highlighting something very specific about God. It is highlighting the fact that he is judge. That's what we're looking at this morning. And we're going to look at this psalm in three different uh, phases or parts. First, we are going to look at what God's judgment is generally. What makes his judgment so unique and so special and, and causes us to, uh, causes in Asaph and should in us to look at him and to worship him for this, this thing, for, for his judgment. We're going to look at the nature of God's judgment. Next, we will look at uh, who the judgment in the psalm is directed towards and what actions of man are being judged by God. That is, the recipients of the judgment. Who's receiving the judgment? Then, we're going to conclude by looking at the ultimate consequences of these judgments seen in the last two verses of Psalm 50. So that's kind of the roadmap for the morning. Uh, and we're going to uh, jump right into this. We're going to talk about the nature of God's judgment. Again, this is uh, important. This is what, again, uh, should cause us to look at God and worship him as we recognize what makes him so unique. What makes his judgment so special. Again, the psalm is about God the judge. Therefore, we need to know what's so special about God's judgment. What is the nature of it? How are the judgments of God different than the judgments of any old court system? What, what makes God so special in his judgments. What makes God's declarations and judgments so great as to spark in Asaph a song of adoration? We see a few things, and they're all central to God's character, to who he is. First, we see that God's judgment, it's over all. That's why it's special. It's, it's all-encompassing. It applies to everyone and everything. Verse 1, the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken, and he has summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. You ever hear the phrase, everything under the sun? This is essentially the ancient equivalent of that phrase. 
If you were to go outside and watch the sunrise in the east and stay outside until it sets in the west, it would form a perfect arch over you and everything around you would go over, uh, go over everything. And this is to say that God sees all and he judges all. No one can escape this judgment. And we'll talk about that a little later on too when we get into the recipients, but it's seen here as well. God's judgment is special because it is all-encompassing. This very, you see how this denying God as judge is actually really, really bad? You deny God as judge, you, you also deny that God is all-knowing. You also deny that God is all-powerful. You're denying key attributes of who God is when you deny God the judge. And so we see God judges all. It applies to everyone. To deny God the judge is, in a sense, to deny that he is all-knowing, and therefore, this all-encompassing quality of his judgment is very important. And I think sometimes our issue in contemplating God's judgment properly is that we relate it too much to our limited and flawed system. Right? Our courts cannot physically summon all of humanity to give an account. You guys ever seen court fees? No lawyer in their mind would want to deal with those type of court fees. So our system really only judges those who get caught. Our system in reality is fairly ineffective in bringing about what most of us really deserve. What is funny is even when we think about every human law on the books, and if these human laws were exhaustively enforced, many of us would not be able to avoid formal judgment in the courtroom, would we? If every illegal U-turn was enforced... If every rolling stop was enforced, if perhaps those things that were bigger than traffic violations were enforced, where would we land? Lucky for, for us, humanity is limited. But God, you see, is capable of judging all peoples for all times, for everything. Everything under the sun is in his domain it's different. It's over all people. No one can escape it. We see this said in the book of Hebrews, nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. And it says that everyone is going to have to give an account for what they've done. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Not only that, but we also see the idea of omnipotence. That is all-powerful. We see that God is all-powerful here. In bringing about his judgments, God can actually enforce the law. He, to the dotting of, of the I and the crossing of the T, God can bring about his law. In verse 3, we see this. Look at the picture of God. Verse 3, it says, May our God come and not keep silent. Fire devours before him, and a storm is violently raging around him. He has power to bring about his judgments. He is not all talk. You guys have probably maybe experienced it uh, when someone's all talk, right? And you know they can't do nothing. They're not going to actually do anything. And so you go about and you do whatever you want. You see, this description of God in verse 3 is the complete opposite of that. This is like 
old school parenting 101, you know something, the hammer is going to get brought down. And the description we see of God, it's one of ability to carry through with judgment. And you know, the original uh, people who are reading this would recognize this language and, and know that this is a sign of God's judgment, and it is powerful, and it is real. You look at how God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. They, they had this fiery image here when, it, when it's concerning judgment. Also, too, the violent storms. Think of the flood. These characteristics were a part of Uh, In these descriptions, they were a part of getting across the point that God is able to bring about his law and all of the consequences that are involved in it. So again, how is God's judgment unique? He is able to bring about his law. He is um, omnipotent and all-powerful in his judgments. And again, the problem that we often have is we view God's judgment uh, in in kind of these limited human terms, when in reality, it is all-encompassing. It is touching every human, every moral agent. He sees all, he knows all, and he is a powerful figure who can bring about justice. But also, it's not random, you see. We know that God's judgments are perfect and righteous. Right? We see... uh, that God's judgments are righteous, for he is perfect. In verse 2, it says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God has shown. Verse 6, In the heavens declare his righteousness, for he himself is judge. Right? This idea of beauty here that we see in verse 2 usually entails moral beauty. And so here, God is the source of moral perfection, which was communicated to the Jewish people, right? That is how God communicated at that time. So here, we also not only see omniscience, right? All-knowing, omnipotence, all-powerful. We see he is all-good. He is omnibenevolent. He is perfect and morally excellent in all of his ways, including his judgments. God is all-good, morally perfect, right? This is part of understanding just the, the concept of God as the greatest possible being. If he says something, it is perfect and it is good because of who he is. You know, our system can fail. Our judgments can sometimes be off. I know mine certainly have. People have been wrongly sentenced in our court system. People have gotten away with crimes in our court system. Or better yet, sometimes our own imperfect human laws are messed up. Look at uh, abortion, right? Our system can sometimes get it very, very wrong. And we can make all sorts of errors. And sometimes we loudly and confidently assert our opinions. But friends, they are just that. Opinions. There is only one who speaks in utter truth. That is the truth. That is the Lord. And his judgments cannot fail. They are never wrong. We will see that he will present his case before the wicked and say, you cannot prove me wrong. Look at what you have done. And so you see, denying God the judge is denying all of these essential attributes of who God is. It is important to worship God the judge. 
Because if we don't, we begin to reject his omnipotence. We begin to reject that he knows everything. And we begin to reject that he is good and perfect in his judgments. We need a clear picture of God as the embodiment of justice and fairness. He gives each what they deserve. He, from his infinite knowledge and perfect vantage point, is simply not susceptible to mistakes. He can do no wrong. And when we begin to deny God the judge, we actually are left not with a maximally great being, God, we are left with some lesser being who makes mistakes in his judgments, not the Lord. His judgment is tied into who he is. His perfection is tied into his nature. So we see his judgment, it's all-encompassing. It touches everyone and sees everything because he is all-knowing. It is able to be carried out because he's all-powerful. It is perfect and right and fair because he is all good and he is perfect in his nature. So this is what we see as far as the nature of God's judgment in verses one through six. We see this description of God the judge and what makes his judgment so special. And now we're gonna take a look at the specifics. Who is being judged and for what actions? And this is where we're gonna spend the majority of our time this morning for, for two reasons, one, uh, Asaph spends the majority of his time here, and I want to be uh, faithful to the message that was being conveyed through him. And two, uh, we, if we have this prior understanding that God's judgments are perfect, there's an awful lot to learn here as he judges people, isn't there? So let's look now at the recipients of God's judgment. And there are two main recipients that we see. Now, we know God judges all of humanity. However, this psalm separates the judgment of God into two groups, two main recipients of his judgment. We see first the righteous who are seeking to serve the Lord and are sacrificing before the Lord. That's in 7 through 15. And then we see a second group of wicked hypocrites. And we're going to look at each of these groups and spend some time uh, seeing what we can learn from the Lord's judgment over these people through this psalm. Let's look at this first group, the righteous who are making sacrifices before the Lord. Here's how it opens up. Here's the judgment. It says, hear my people and I will speak Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. So the Lord, right, who through verses 1 through 6, we've just set up, is perfect in all of his ways, all of his judgment, able to carry through everything. Here is his perfect judgment. He says that they are, in verse 8, it clearly says the judgment is not regarding their sacrifices. This means the Lord, in his infinite knowledge, saw that they were following all of the rules of sacrifice. They were washing their hands in the appropriate way. They were cutting the meat and distributing it properly, doing all of the ritualistic uh, requirements that were necessary. So why then, in verse 7, do we see this phrase, I testify against you? If not for the sacrifice, what is it for? How do we solve this conundrum? Well, this clears itself up 
as we look deeper and see the judgment and the command given in verse 14. And it makes it abundantly clear what the problem was here and why God spoke against them. Here's what verse 14 says. Offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You see, it was not the actions that the Lord was judging here. He is such an omniscient judge. He knows so much that he can judge the mindset. He can judge the heart. And so he does that. He is judging the heart of these people who are making the sacrifices. He knows our minds. He knows our hearts. And he says, that's great. You're following all of the requirements, but where are the sacrifices of thanksgiving? And we see more into this problem. We can kind of uh, learn a little bit more about their mindset as we back up and go to verses 9 to 13. Here's what the Lord says in between, right? He says, I judge you not for your sacrifices. And then verse 14, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And here is the in-between that gives us some crucial insight into how these people were thinking. Here is God speaking to them. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? You see, friends, when we start thinking that our sacrifices to God are fulfilling some sort of need that God has, we are sadly mistaken. It is not as if God is some earthly creature, earthly king, asking us to prepare dinner for him so he can uh, continue on living. God has no needs, and God did not need, per se, these sacrifices either. You see, there is a sense, a sense in which these sacrifices were for God, yes. But there is a deeper sense in which they were really not for God. They were for man. Burnt offerings is what it says in verse 8 that were continually before me. Uh, they were not really in the truest sense uh, to kind of satisfy some of God's needs, right? They were to prevent God's judgment and wrath from pouring down on them. We see this, that, that it's clear in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, that's describing burnt offerings. And it says this, And he, that is the sinner, the sinful man offering the sacrifice, shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering so that it may be accepted for him to make atonement for his behalf. You see, what had happened is the Israelites here, they were following all of the rules, they were doing everything, but they lost sight of what this meant. They lost sight that the burnt offerings themselves that they were doing in, in, in obedience to the Lord was actually God's mercy and grace over them. God could have struck everyone dead for their sins. But yes, God is a judge, but he is a God of mercy as well. And he's here judging their mindset. God is saying, yes, it is good that you are doing the burnt offerings as I commanded, but that very command was an act of mercy. Therefore, where is the thanksgiving if you are viewing it properly? The ones beyond the burnt sacrifice. 
the ones thanking him for his provision. Usually, these Thanksgiving offerings were uh, grain offerings or peace offerings as described in Leviticus. That They were kind of associated with that language of offering Thanksgiving. And the offerings themselves were not required to atone for sin, but they were additional. They were additional offerings to the Lord. So that's why the Lord here is saying, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He wants something else. He is saying, why, if you are doing all of this and doing it with the right mindset, why are you not as well thanking me? Why are you only doing the minimum? The minimum? Are you not thankful for, for the provisions I have for you? He says, I am the, the Lord. I won't thank you for giving me my goat. Rather, it is you who should be thankful for me even having this system in place for you to even have any sort of communication with me. It is a heart that recognizes what the Lord has done for you. And this is true of, any, of anyone who is truly thankful for something. You're going to go above and beyond, right? Think about, you know, God... Paying taxes is what we do the minimum for, <laughs> okay? And that's because maybe we're not particularly thankful for our government. Maybe that's another message. Maybe we should be a little more thankful. But paying taxes is minimum. <laughs> when God blesses you and allows you to commune with him, naturally our hearts should be exploding with gratitude. Man is inclined to go above and beyond when, uh, when the object they are sacrificing to is actually loved. You see? That is the point. And friends, we know burnt offerings were only a sign of the greater atonement to come through Christ. And that if the Israelites under the old covenant were to be thankful, how much more are we to be thankful under the new covenant of Christ's blood? People only offer thanks when they recognize that they've received something. You're never going to thank someone if you don't recognize that you first received, right? Do you recognize what you have received, friend? Are you serving in thankfulness for what the Lord has done for you? You know, the Lord has taught me many valuable uh, lessons in my almost decade of, of ministry now that I've been a part of, but this is the one I need to remind myself the most, that whenever we offer anything to God, it is not because he is in need. It is not because he is in need. You can't offer something he doesn't already have. Rather, we get to serve God. We get to express thankfulness to him when we serve in Sunday school or youth ministry or bus ministry or the snack table or worship ministry or, or anything, or even preaching, all of this is not offering God something that he doesn't already have. He is completely sufficient in and of himself. And if you weren't around and if I weren't around, the rocks would cry out and worship him. The true God, unlike some conceptions of God, like, like the Muslim God, the true God is all satisfied in himself. He needs nothing from us. He doesn't need to create us. But he does so because he is good. He created us 
um, not for a selfish purpose, but to share his greatness with us. And we should be serving in thanksgiving as we recognize that fact. Therefore, in recognition of all that God has done, we get to serve and we get to sacrifice in thanksgiving. You see, God wants thankful sacrifices flowing from abundant recognition of his greatness. God judged his people, even the ones who sacrificed, based on their mindset and based on them missing the sacrifices of thanksgiving. Not just the actions the Lord judges, but the mindset. And again, we see this brought out even further. Look at this last command in this judgment in verse 15. He says, call upon me on the day of trouble and I will rescue you and you will honor me. You want to know how to honor God? Call upon him for rescue. Realize that our dependence on God is what honors God. Realize that truth. God is not dependent on man. Man is dependent on God. And from recognizing this fact, we ought to serve the Lord in thanksgiving, not mere duty. And when this fact is not realized, friends, God will judge us for it. God does not need man. Man needs God. And having this view of God should always result in thanksgiving and honor to him. This mindset was lacking in the people that God was judging in Psalm 50. And brothers and sisters, let it not be the case with us. So that is those who are sacrificing. That is their judgment. Now we see something different. We see the judgment of the wicked hypocrites. Now hypocrites, this is kind of like, you guys ever seen the theater masks? Right, the two theater masks, and if you do uh, do theater or acting, that means that you are an actor. You're being fake. You're being something that you are not in reality. Uh, that you're not in reality. You're you're pretending, and it's a performance. And they thought that their performance could fool God, the Judge. You see, the root of all of these sins we are about to talk about is actually uh, that they have missed one through six. They've missed the nature of God's judgment and they believe that God can be fooled and so they act in hypocrisy out of their misconception of who God is. They tried to fool God and they tried to fool everyone else. Here's what we see in verse 16. It says, but to the wicked, God says, what right do you have to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you yourself hate discipline and you throw my words behind you. You see, the law was on their mouth, uh, on their mouths, verse 16 indicates, that they took a verbal covenant. They were speaking about the law of God. And friends, it is possible to verbally affirm something with your mouth, but despise it in your heart and despise it in your actions. And that is what they are being judged for here. They are believing as the demons believe, perhaps. And we see this overarching theme in this judgment of hypocrisy, pretending to be something or affirm something, but in reality being much different. You know, it's one thing to to talk. It's another thing to walk. Remember earlier, God judges everything under the sun. He sees, he knows all things. You can't fool him. And so God begins in this judgment listing specific ways in which the wicked are being hypocritical. 
These wicked could fool man, but they could not fool God. And so he judges them and specifically calls them out on their hypocrisy. They were judged for a few reasons. We'll go over um, two, two of them that I see here. And that is the first, that they are associating with the world. That's the first thing we see, verse 18. When you see a thief, you become friends with him and you associate with the adulterers. The Lord is judging the fact that they are friends and associate, associates with the people of this world. Now again, something interesting about this judgment is that the wicked here that are being judged, this second recipient, it's not another nation. Okay, it's not another nation from another land. This could be argued by the opening verses that say that this psalm is a judgment of his people, verse 4. And also, uh, he, in verse 16, we know that they at least in some nominal way took a covenant with their mouth, right? So it can be said that this is supposed to be God's holy people. And here they are. Now, not being holy, associating and becoming friends with the world. Hypocritical association and friendship with the things of this world. The issue is that this was supposed to be God's holy people. They were called to look different. And we see this over and over again. Leviticus 19.2, 27, 20, 26, 21, 8, Exodus 19.6. Be holy for I am holy. Be, that means separate. Holy means set apart, distinct. You're different. You're for a specific purpose. And here they are now coming together side by side with, with the thief, with the adulterer. They are partaking and associating in the things of this world. And that is hypocrisy. That is why they are judged. Now look, this is not saying we can't have any type of interaction with the world and that we're supposed to be monks. Right? As Paul says, if, if that was the case, we need to leave this world. This is deeper than a mere you know, superficial interaction. Look at the language here. Friendship with the world. It means you have something in common with this person. C.S. Lewis describes friendship as a common adoration for something. Friends are imagined side by side looking at something. They're intrigued by something. And let me tell you, friend, the thief is not adoring God. And so if you are friends with the thief, that common adoration is certainly not the Lord. It is the things of this world that, that are binding you together. It is your own Wicked hearts, treasures. There is a sense in which we should, of course, interact with the world, but they are the mission. God's people should never stand side by side with the world and treasure what the world treasures and think like the world. Ultimately, because God himself is supposed to be our treasure, we're supposed to be overflowing with thanksgiving for him, remember. We should have nothing in common with the thief. We should simply, uh, you know, because God is our treasure in our hearts, we should never be able to call the thief our friend. And here we see an association with the uh, adulterer. In the Hebrew, this word association, it has this idea of having your portion with them. Again, thinking uh, of you're vested in what they're vested in. Your treasure is where their treasure is delighting and connecting in some intimate form with the wickedness and the corruptness of this world. 
And we know that this should not be the case. James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? God's people were to be distinct. And here, Psalm 50, we see that they made friends and associated themselves with the world. And again, this applies to us in the New Covenant as well. 1 Peter 1.16, quoting the Old Testament, says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. We too are to be distinct. We too are to not make friends with the world, not be vested in the things of this earth. For if we are, and then we come here on Sunday mornings and praise God, we too are hypocrites. We cannot be friends with this world. The world is our mission not our friend or associate. So we see this is the first judgment of hypocrisy of the wicked. They associate with the world. Second, we see that they are hypocrites because of the way they use their mouths. The judgment of their tongues. I'm going to try to uh, move it along here. The judgment of their tongues. It says, 19, you let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue harnesses deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Right? There is even an idea here of the Lord's judgment that it runs so deep that we will be judged for every evil word spoken, every little white lie, everything here that, that we have ever said we are going to be accountable for. We are accountable for the inconsistencies of our tongue. Deceit, we see here, lies, deception. They are accountable. Maybe, you know, no one found out because they were very clever at what they did. But God in this, this psalm declares, I know. He knew the tongue that harnessed deceit. Again, we see hypocrisy, that the covenant is on their lips. But what else is on their lips? Lies. Friends, I pray this is not the case with us either, that we don't harness deceit on our mouths as well as worship the Lord. We see that uh, this is judged as well in, in the New Testament. We see with it, that's the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. And he says it should not be this way. We saw deceit, but also we see speaking against your brother, slander, right? Slandering Pointing out the blemishes in other people and making them look bad while we sit. The text gets across to you that this is a family. There is no loyalty that lies in the wicked, in the heart of the wicked. Even your friend, even your comrade, your brother, your blood, you'll speak ill against. And you will be judged by this. And do not think that we are beyond this temptation it is easy, even in, in a Christian church setting, to slander our brothers and sisters, to speak ill of how people uh, look, maybe, uh, maybe our dress and our clothes and what should be appropriate. And instead of actually addressing it with the brother in an appropriate way, we talk about them behind their back. We too are susceptible to this, and we too will be judged by the Lord, for he knows exactly every word that was ever spoken. So here's what we see. And all of these sins, mind you, have this root. They all have this root 
All of these sins that were a sign of their hypocrisy were rooted in the fact that they had a warped understanding of God the judge. That is the point. That is the point. It was all rooted in the fact that they reject God the judge. It was rooted in a fundamental lack of understanding of our point, point one, the nature of God's judgment. They didn't understand his omniscience. They didn't understand his power to bring about his judgment. Look at what they say in 21. These, this is God. These things you have done. He calls out all of their stuff that they thought they were getting away with. These things you have done. And I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. That is the, what's, what caused all of these sins in their heart. To, take, uh, to actually come to fruition because they didn't understand God properly. Friends, your theology affects your actions. If I were to tell you right now that I planted a bomb in your cars, and if you genuinely believed that truth, that is going to affect your actions. And friends, they did not recognize the truth that God is judge. They thought God was just like them, limited in judgment, and so they acted about in the way they acted. That's, that's the point here. They, mis they were mistaking God's enduring patience and his silence as a flaw or as a weakness that he doesn't know. They interpreted his kindness as a sign that he must not really be the judge he says he is. So let's be merry. The wicked fundamentally had a warped picture of God. They thought God is like man and can't possibly enforce his law. They thought God could be fooled like the world. They abandoned the picture of God that, they, they, that was in verses 1 through 6 that we went over earlier. And they had their own faulty idea and it led to their, their judgment. We can say that we will follow a covenant in our mouth and do whatever we want as long as we're sneaky about it. That's, that's what they're thinking. And ironically, at its core, this judgment of the wicked stems from a very lack of understanding of the infinite and all-knowing God who is powerful judge. He is not like man. These poor premises they had in their heart, this misunderstanding about God the judge, that is what they built their lives around, and ironically, that is a reason, the reason, indirectly for their judgment. They were judged for their, their sins as well. They were judged for their mouths, like I said, but indirectly, their lack of recognition of God is what caused this, this, this judgment in Psalm 50, from which you know, all of their hypocritical actions flowed from their bad theology. Now, here is what is interesting. This psalm uh, on the, the perfect judgment of God indicates that God's able to identify it, right? He knew, he knew. So he proves them wrong, and what does it say? He will present the case before your eyes. Every mouth will one day be shut as the Lord makes his righteous judgment, and he will judge. He will judge us for fellowshipping with the world. He will judge us for every evil word spoken out of our mouth. And he will judge us even for our improper view of who he is. And failing to see him as judge will not circumvent the consequences. He will, according to verse 21, present his case before your eyes. And you will not be able to avoid his judgment. You will see that he knows. And so we have real consequences for these things. The consequences of God's judgment 
Here they are. Now consider this, you who forget God. That's the wicked we just spoke about. Or I will tear you into pieces and there will be no one to save you. Look at that language. Forget God. You have a warped understanding of God. You're not thinking about him right. You're ignoring him. You just don't care about who he is. This has results. And the results, friends, are very, very real. I will tear you into pieces and there will be no one to save you. If you fail to recognize God the judge, that doesn't mean judgment will not come. It is incoming. Verse 22 indicates even if you forget God, makes it sound almost nice. Like, like uh, the kids at school, I teach forget to do their homework. What, what does that really mean? It means you don't honor it. You don't hold it in high value. You, do, you don't forget things that are important to you. If I gave you a million dollars, right, and I left it on all of your seats, I don't think you would forget it. Why? Because it's weighty. And so these people, they forget God, and that's because they didn't honor God in their hearts. And so they are judged for this. They are judged for not having an appropriate picture of who God is. And the judgment is graphic, being torn into pieces without hope of salvation. No one will save you, it says. Here is what we see in Romans 2. Romans 2 correlates nicely here because Romans 2 is also about hypocrites. And we know that that certainly applies to our text. Here is what it says. It says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay each person according to his deeds. His judgment will be righteous, and hypocrisy, and forsaking God, and all of these things will be repaid. Judgment awaits the hypocrite. Judgment awaits those who laugh at God the judge instead of worship him. Judgment awaits those who, who do not properly honor the Lord. Asaph saying of God, why? Because friends, despite what I think, despite what you think, God is the judge. If you forget he is watching us, we don't take into account all of this, it's going to be bad news for us. But, he will judge us for every small and every large thing that everyone has ever done. But look at the language of our text again. Verse 22. Now consider this. It is a plea. It's saying that, that image of God you have that he is not judge. Get that out of your mind. Consider what we have just said. Or I will tear you into pieces. That little word, that little conjunction or means this is not necessarily our fate. We do not have to be torn into pieces. That if you heed, if you recognize the Lord, if you honor him correctly and have the appropriate weight, if you consider him as judge, there is a different destiny that awaits. Consider this very message, you who forgets God. He is judge. Honor him appropriately in, in your hearts. And then it goes on, and this is the, the, the other judgment he says, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who sets his way properly, I will show the salvation of God. 
You see the contrast between 22 and 23? The wicked forget God and reject God as judge and create their own false versions, but the righteous, they honor him. They see him as he is. And the the word honor here is actually associated with, with glory. They see him as he is. They see the infinite weight of who God is. And they value him as judge, and so they treat him accordingly, and they give him his due, and they give him thanksgiving. They have a proper picture of God, and so they, in humility, submit themselves in obedience, and God doesn't tear the righteous to pieces, but offers salvation. And friend, when you begin to recognize God, when you attribute in your file folder in your head, Pretend your head's a computer. When you contribute in your file folder uh, labeled God in your mind, when you attribute judge in that folder, ironically, there is also great mercy that comes with it. Because God is merciful. He offers salvation. He could have destroyed all the Jews, but he promised salvation. He made a promise to them, and he is faithful. From the very first failure of man, he promised to crush the serpent's head. He promised David that from him, Messiah would come and that he would remember their sins no more because he himself would provide a perfect substitute. He would be the one who was torn into pieces for us. Jesus Christ was judged, suffered the consequences, was torn apart. And the offerings, you see, that were continually before the Lord in Psalm 50 could not take away the sin, but they were a mere shadow of Christ, as indicated in Hebrews 10. Friends, Christ is that way of salvation, recognizing the proper picture of God, recognizing Jesus is God. Friends, would we... Accept the salvation that is offered. Accept accept the appropriate picture of God the judge and ironically realize it's coupled with God the Savior. The salvation of God will be shown. Here's what we have seen. We saw the nature of God's judgment that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good and perfect and righteous in all of his judgments. We saw the two recipients Right? God's judging those who sacrifice to him. He's judging their mindset, their lack of thanksgiving. And God is judging the hypocrisy and inappropriate view of himself that the wicked had. And then we see the consequences. The wicked will be destroyed. But those who honor him appropriately, those who give thanks to him and recognize who he is, will, he will direct you and he will show you the way of salvation uh, let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are judge. Lord, we recognize that fact. We no longer try to uh, avoid it. But Lord, we recognize that you are perfect and righteous in all of your judgments towards us. And Lord, that we are far from it. We are sinners. But God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for the love of Christ. We thank you that you took that that penalty for us, Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would live 
in thanksgiving. All of our service would be in thanksgiving, recognizing how great of a God you are and how much you have blessed us. Lord, bless us now as we go in Christ's name.